0: All right, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. I will read the whole chapter. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man." In those days men will seek death, and they will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails, like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power, their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, angel who had the trumpet released the four angels who were bound at the great river euphrates so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million i heard the number of them and thus i saw the horses in the vision those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow and their heads And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So two weeks ago, we began looking at the trumpet judgments, the third cycle of seven. Remember, Revelation is given to us in these sort of Cycles, seven cycles, and sevens and sevens and sevens all over the place. So this is the third cycle. The first cycle were the seven churches. The second cycle were the seven seals. And now the third cycle are the seven trumpets. And the trumpet judgments are not a separate execution of God's judgment distinct from the seven seals. Rather, they are different views of judgment during this same period that we're looking at. This period, again, between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. So this is just another viewpoint, another perspective on this period of time we're looking at. One author who wrote on this, a man named Richard Phillips, wrote a very nice commentary on it, sums it up quite nicely when he says, "...the visions of Revelation enable us to look on history from the perspective of God's throne room in heaven." Now I'm going to pause here. Right, how many people have seen National Treasure? Anyway, National Treasure. It's a great movie. Nicolas Cage, right? He's, he's, uh, he's, he believes, his family believes that there's secret code on the back of the Declaration of Independence. So he goes and he steals it so someone else doesn't steal it. And he finds these glasses, right? And as he's looking at the back of the Declaration of Independence, these glasses have little lenses that he can move and drop. And every time he drops a lens... He sees a new image on the back of the Declaration of Independence. So that this illustration is being brought, this commentator mentions that as he writes on this. So is, you know, again, these visions of revelation enable us to look on history from the perspective of God's throne room in heaven. So as God, as we lower these lenses, you've got the lens of the seven seals, and that sees God guarding his servants to pass through the great tribulation. Uh, of earth to arrive safely into heaven. Then we lower the lens of the seven trumpets and we see God's judgment that declare the inevitable victory of Christ and call idolatrous mankind to repent of sin. When we get to the seven bulls, that lens will reveal the judging punishments from God that destroy the fortresses and the pleasure palaces of this age. That was Richard Phillips. So again, these... You know the seals and trumpets and bowls. Oh my, seals and trumpets and bowls. Oh my, they are different perspectives of this period, different viewpoints. As we see, you know, again the seals show how God protects His people as judgment is coming. As we see these trumpets, this is more direct judgment now on the evildoers, on the wicked. We don't really see too much mention of God's people when we see the bowls. That's final judgment because. As we saw in the trumpets before, one third of everything is destroyed. When we get to the bowls, everything gets destroyed. Now, this idea that God protects his people during this entire period of this tribulation would be a source of great comfort, a source of great consolation to a church, particularly at the end of the first century that John is writing to. These churches that were about ready to face some serious persecution have already, some of them have already face some very serious persecution. So it brings comfort to them. It brings comfort really to anybody, any Christian in any period of time who is undergoing persecution for their faith to know that God has sealed you through this, that God will protect you through this, and that God will bring judgment and vindicate you on the evildoers. So these trumpets then show God unleashing devastating yet limited judgment upon this phrase, the inhabitants of the earth. When you see that in Revelation, the inhabitants of the earth that is talking about the wicked, the unbelievers, they are the inhabitants of the earth. Whenever it talks about believers in Revelation, it always seems to have some kind of reference to them being in heaven or being before the throne or being sealed and so on and so forth. Now last time again we looked at Revelation 8, verses 6-13, through 13. we saw the first four trumpets. They were blown, announcing the coming judgments of God, and we said before they destroyed one-third of everything they touched. So, first trumpet destroyed one-third of the vegetation and the forests with all the green grass. The second trumpet destroyed one-third of all the seas and all the ships on the seas. The third trumpet destroyed one-third of the fresh water supply, uh, poisoning them with this bitterness that you see from this great star, wormwood, that falls down. And then the fourth trumpet destroys one-third of all the stars, one-third of all the heavenly lights, and all these things that we see in the heavens. Now all these trumpet judgments depict things, remember, these are direct judgments from God down to earth, because we see all these things being thrown to the earth from heaven, thrown down, so you see hail and fire mixed with blood being thrown down to the earth, or or a great burning mountain being thrown into the seas, or this great star Wormwood st- being thrown down to the, to the earth and striking uh, you know, the, the, the rivers, and then a striking of all the, sc- the stars in the sky. So in other words, we need to resist this urge, and I'm going to continue to relabor this point, we need to resist this urge to see something in our past or something, look for something in the future that corresponds to these things that we see happening in Revelation. So we shouldn't expect to see a big star that someone's going to call Wormwood falling down or all these things. These are symbols. These are visions. In other words, as we've stressed at various points throughout the study, Revelations' visions are apocalyptic visions. They present reality through the symbols and pictures that John sees. Again, John is seeing these images so when he says he sees a great mountain, that's what he sees. But it's representing something that is not a literal mountain. Okay. Now before we get into the lesson tonight, I do want to take a few moments to talk about spiritual warfare because that's what we're going to see here in the fifth and the sixth trumpets. It's going to not, they, they're not only going to under, uh, challenge our understanding just to understand these trumpets, But also, it's going to highlight a reality that we see before us even today, which is the fact of spiritual warfare. Now we talk about spiritual warfare from time to time, but we, at least not since I've been here, I haven't really talked about it in any detail. Perhaps a previous pastor has talked about it. But if you were to think about spiritual warfare, where would be the first sort of like key place you would go if you just to snap off something? The armor of God, right. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, Paul in that letter, as he closes that letter, appeals to the Ephesian believers to take up the armor of God. And he says there, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Again, a very important thing. Our strength does not come from ourselves, our strength does not come from our own. Ingenuity, our own physical strength, our own mental strength, it comes from the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. And then he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Again, very important. The Christian's warfare is not against people, it's not against flesh and blood. So we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those are really just it's a way of talking about the demonic forces, principalities, powers of darkness, uh, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are demonic forces. Forces. Now, demonic forces do inhabit and do affect physical things. They do infect kingdoms. They do affect people. You see this throughout the Gospels, right? A person comes by and they say, you know, they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, Jesus, will you come and please cast out this demon from my son because he throws himself into the fire or whatever. You know, so we see Jesus going along and he's casting demons out of people. And again, this is an idea of showing how as Christ comes, the kingdom of God is breaking forth and it's taking back the territory that Satan and his minions have sort of usurped from from God. But our, our battle is against these invisible demonic forces, not against flesh and blood. So what we see in our culture today, what we see as cultural or societal rot or degradation is really just sort of like a storefront. Okay, so I watch movies like The Godfather and other, you know, mobster movies. And the mobster movies would always have a front, right? You have to have a legitimate business in order to hide what the mob is doing. So they would have some kind of business that they would launder their cash through and then the cash would be clean. Well, in the, in the area of spiritual warfare, what you see happening in society, that's sort of like the legitimate business. That's the storefront where behind the scenes is all of this demonic activity going on. Or maybe another, you know, in The Lord of the Rings, I know I'm probably like one of only three people who've seen The, the Lord of the Rings here. But if, if you remember that scene in the first movie, in The Fellowship of the Ring, where, where Frodo gets the ring and it's and it sort of, you know, he, he falls and the ring is funny and it falls right onto his hand like that. And then he gets a picture of the, the spiritual realm in a way. Or when he's up on Weathertop and he puts the ring on, he sees the ring rates, the, the walkers, and they look like these great kind of decaying, rotting kings in these white flowing robes with these big crowns. But in reality, they just look like scary looking people with black hoods and, and you know they speak real raspy. So behind the front is this spiritual warfare, warfare going on. That's why it, Paul will say, and you can if you want, you could turn to Second Corinthians 10, we're going to be we might be flipping around a bit, so And in Second Corinthians chapter 10, uh, starting in verse three, Paul writes to that church there, "For though we walk in the flesh." We do not war according to the flesh. Okay, so I mean, again, there, that sounds like Ephesians 6, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. So even though we walk in flesh, you know, we've got bodies and stuff, we do not war in this realm. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not earthly. They're not of the flesh. But my, uh, but, uh, sorry. Let's see, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So again, our warfare is not in this realm, and it's not using swords or guns or bows and arrows or any kind of earthly weapon, but our, our, our weapons are powerful. It's the Word of God as we use it to bring down every lofty argument, every, every uh, false argument, every, any, every falsehood, and we, we use the sword of truth here. This is our weapon. And we cast down arguments in every high thing that exalts, exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive. So this demonic and spiritual activity is even behind many of the world's governments influencing them into an anti-God direction against the people of God. So now I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel. That's in the Old Testament. It's after all the big prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. And I want to go look at Daniel chapter 10. If you hit Hosea, you've gone too far. And in Daniel chapter 10, We see here, starting in verse 10. So Daniel had prayed, and now he's getting an answer to that prayer. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because because of your words. But, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. So Daniel gets this vision in chapter 9 of the 70 weeks, and he prays and he's trying to get some understanding, and God hears the prayer, and an angel is dispatched, but this angel says he was delayed. Now who could delay an angel? Well, probably another angel, right? Another stronger angel, a demon, this, this individual known as the Prince of Persia. Now, this is not like some movie, right? The Prince of Persia. This is not a person. This is a demon, a demonic in- entity that is involved in behind the scenes working in the kingdom of Persia. So this angel, this demon, was, uh, fights with this angel and holds him to a standstill until Michael has to come into the fray. And Michael helps out against this other angel, defeating the prince of Persia, so now this angel can come and minister to Daniel. And he said, if he hadn't come, I would have been left alone there with the kings of Persia. And then he says, now I've come to make you understand what will happen. So again, behind world governments is demonic activity. If you remember you know, the so-called passages that talk about Satan's fall in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, it talks about a lamentation against the king of Tyre or lamentation against the king of Babylon. But then as you read through those passages, you find out it's like this is this is talking way more about than just the king of Babylon or the king of Tyre. You know, there's there's this demonic activity behind these kingdoms. And again, finally, don't forget what Jesus told his disciples when after he said I will build my church and then what does he tell them? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail against it. Now, if, in other words, the church ought not to worry so much about what's happening in the world, flesh and blood, people attacking it. I mean, yeah, you, we worry about that because that's where it manifests itself, but Jesus says, even the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail against the church because I'm building my church and I'm protecting my church. So spiritual warfare is real, and it's going to play a very big role in the next two trumpets that we're about to look at right now as we look at the 5th and the 6th trumpet. But as we come into tonight's passage, let's not forget what we saw at the end of the last passage in verse 13 of chapter 8. You can flip back to Revelation now. But in chapter 13 of verse 8, John, after the fourth seal was, or fourth trumpet was blown, says, "...and I looked..." And I heard an angel, and we had a little bit of a discussion last time, whether it's an angel or an eagle, Um, take your pick. (laughs) Some Bibles say eagle, some Bibles say angel. Um, I heard an angel slash eagle flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So we hear this announcement, this pronouncement of cursing. That's what woe is. When Isaiah caught a glimpse of the holiness of God in the temple in Isaiah 6, he said, woe is me, okay, for I am undone. May a curse be placed upon me, for I have seen the Lord. So he pronounces a cursing on himself. So here this angel or eagle is pronouncing curses upon the earth because the worst is yet to come. And as the fifth and the sixth trumpets are about to blow, these first two woes here, we see this now, the opening of this bottomless pit. So looking first now at the fifth trumpet. So after the angel announces this pending woe of the last three trumpets, we see the fifth of seven angels sound his trumpet in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now John sees this star. So, you know, the trumpet blows. Okay, the trumpet blows and then the star falls down from heaven to earth. And then keys are given to the star. Now, this doesn't sound unusual, what we've seen so far. With the first four trumpets, right? Stuff falling from heaven down to earth. Hail and fire. Great burning mountains. A star called Wormwood. But what is unusual in this, in this particular instance here is we see this star falling from heaven to earth? Can, did you note something unusual in here? What's that? He. Did you say he like the pronoun, right? Right, exactly. This star is personal. This star is personal to him. Was given the keys to the bottomless pit. In other words, this fallen star is a is, is personal. So, who is this fallen star? We're going to take this is where we get to vote in church. Okay, who is this fallen star? What do you? I'll do, I'll entertain options here. Who do you think this fallen star is? Okay, so Satan or a fallen angel is one. Who, who here votes for Satan or a fallen angel? Who here thinks it's maybe just a regular angel, like a holy angel? Who here thinks it may be Jesus himself? Okay, we've got one vote for Jesus, two votes for Jesus, three votes for Jesus. Joanne's not sure. I don't know if that's a vote or just a like... Ah, <laughs> All right, so it seems like the two, the two biggest vote-getters were Satan or a demon or Jesus. Okay, so those are your two options. Now, who thinks it's still Satan or another demon? All right, Mark is going to stick to his guns. Gloria, that's good. Who here thinks it's Jesus? Okay, Liz, who here thinks it's Jesus? Who here is like, Pastor, why don't you tell us because we don't really know? <laughs> All right, now the hands are going up. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just wanted to have a little fun here. I think the most likely answer is that it is an angelic being. Okay, it's not a human person. But then now the next question would be, is it a good or holy angel or an evil or fallen angel, as in a demon? I think both answers can be possible. And I'm going to run through some options here. If you look ahead at Revelation chapter 20 in verses 1 through 4 of the millennial period, and you could flip there if you want, Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, this is the millennial passage, the the famous millennial passage that we'll get to eventually, and we'll find out whether we're ah-mill, post-mill, pre-mill, (laughs) pan-mill. but after these things he must be released for a little while. So there you see an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the pit and a chain. So that could be one argument that this is a holy angel who has the key to the pit. However, however, this star that we see in Revelation chapter 9 is not coming down from heaven. It is falling down from heaven, right? So this would indicate perhaps maybe a fallen angel. But, <laughs> on back on the other hand, <laughs> to muddy the waters, the key to the bottomless pit, literally it says there, the shaft of the abyss, the key was given to him. So why would a demon have a key to his own prison? That doesn't make sense. So perhaps this is an angel, a holy angel. But, on the other other hand, this key is given to him indicating that God is one who is in control of all things and is allowing this demon now to release his comrades. Finally, (laughs) what is this relation here of this angel, this fallen star, to the angel that we see later on, the angel of the bottomless pit in verse 11 of 9. And they had as over them king the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. What is the relation of this fallen star to that angel of the bottomless pit? Are they the same? Which would indicate it's a demon. Or are they different? It might indicate that it's an angel. Alright, so I've, ta- I've given you all these back and forth, right? <laughs> You're like, I'm confused. Okay, I am too. But I will say I think I lean toward it being a demon. I'm not, I'm not um, dogmatic about that, uh, but I think it sounds to me and I think the weight of the evidence feels more that it's a demon. In particular, I, I do identify this fallen star with the uh, angel of the bottomless pit. So I think it's Satan. So I think, Mark, I'm in agreement with you. Okay? <laughs> Doesn't mean we're right, I just agree with you, okay? (laughs) But now, here, what is this bottomless pit? In Greek, the word is abousos, which is literally just transliterated into English as abyss. Now, it's not a physical place, okay? You're not going to take your phone and go to Google Maps and say bottomless pit, and then it gives you directions (laughs) in a travel time, Okay? 666 minutes to the bottomless pit. Okay, no, it's not a physical place, it's a spiritual place. It's a place where demons are held. It's sort of like a prison, hence the key, right? It has to be unlocked, it has to be opened. And it's not a place they want to go. Okay, we're not going to turn there, but in Luke chapter 8, as if you remember, the, the, the person who has the legion of demons in him. Right? And Jesus goes up to him. He says, what is your name? He says, our name is Legion, for we are many. And then he says, well, I'm going to cast you out of this person. And the demons plead with Jesus, please, 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 do not send us to the bottomless pit. Do not send us to the abyss. So these demons, it's their prison, and they don't want to be there. Okay? But it is a spiritual place. So now this abyss is open, and what do we see in verses 2 in three now. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. So the door of the pit is opened, and smoke comes billowing out. It's almost as if you've got this furnace that's being stoked and you know, the smoke comes filing, you know, flying out of this furnace and everything goes dark. Now, the key, not the key to the abyss, but the key to interpreting in Revelation is where. Where do, we, where do we find the best evidence to interpret Revelation or the best key to interpret Revelation? Do we look to the newspapers? No, where do we look? To the other scripture, to the Old Testament in particular. Now, I told you we're going to be turning to a lot of places. Uh, Turn to the prophet Joel. You're like, where's Joel? Well, he's in the Old Testament. He comes after Daniel. It's Hosea, Joel, Amos. So he's between Hosea and Amos. All right, Joel chapter 2. In particular, I'm going to read chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 11. So, here, if you have headings in your Bible, uh, what does does it say above chapter 2 there? Army of locusts. Army of locusts. Any other options? Day of the Lord. Lord. Okay. All right. Both are applicable. So, chapter 2, verse 1 blow the trumpet in Zion. Trumpets, hey and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Now, pay attention to verse 2. A day of darkness and gloominess, day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. So again, when when the pit was opened, smoke and clouds billowing out from the pit, making everything dark. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been seen, nor will ever, there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. A land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Now I'm going to pause here for a second because in chapter 1, if you, if you have chapter 1 before you, verse 4 there, the prophet Joel comes after apparently an actual locust swarm came and destroyed much of the crops in Israel and in Judah in those days. So he's saying that the day of the Lord, you, you, will see, you will see destruction like that locust storm, except it's going to be much worse. But in verse 4 of chapter 1, we see here what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust is eaten. What the crawling locust is left, the consuming locust is eaten. So, it is, this is total destruction, right? As these locusts come by, it's like whatever one left behind, another one is right behind it to eat that. Well, as you look back now at chapter 2, verse 3, we see here whatever is coming, this now you know, locust like plague coming through. You know, the land is like the Garden of Eden. So before them, it looks like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, it's a desolate wilderness. So as these locusts swarm, it is literally turning the Garden of Eden into a desolate wilderness. Going on in verse 3, Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and uh, like swift steeds, so they run. So again, we're going to see how this looks. You know, we see this in Revelation 9. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column, though they lunge between the weapons. They are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter into the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. And the stars diminish their brightness. Again, that idea of darkening here. The Lord gives voice before His army. For His camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So we have here this great... Locust swarm coming and destroying everything. The day of the Lord will be just like that. So we get these references to darkness and gloominess, clouds and thick darkness, the sun and moon growing dark, and the sun and the stars diminishing. This is the day of the Lord. Joel describes it the day of the Lord, that great and terrible day in which the Lord enacts vengeance upon the earth. And that's what Joel foretold, and that's what we see as the fifth trumpet is blown. The day of the Lord is at hand. The, the, the locust army comes out of the bottomless pit, and the sun and everything goes dark. Judgment is coming. And the prophecy here so, not only that, but we see coming up out of the earth here this locust, these locust armies as the fifth trumpet is blown, and it says, To them was given power. So again, the prophecy in Joel likened the day of the Lord to a great destructive locust swarm. And this locust swarm, now as we see back in Revelation chapter 9, you can go back there now. This locust swarm coming from the abyss is given a command in verses 4 through 6. Where we see there in Revelation chapter 9, verse 4 they were commanded, this locust swarm was commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days men will seek death, and they will not find it, for they will desire to die, and death will flee from them. So pretty terrible, right? So these <laughs> these locusts come. Now it should be clear what we see here is not really a literal locust swarm, right? Because what locusts have you ever heard of does not eat trees or grass or leaves or any green thing, right? That's all locusts eat, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, I don't. Do we get locust swarm here in Nebraska? I'm seeing a lot of heads going up and down. Okay. Right, And I'm sure it, it kind of devastates the corn crop and everything. So, this is a demonic horde. But they do have authority, since they are told not to eat the grass or the leaves, but they do have authority to afflict pain and torment on those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, i.e. unbelievers. Right? Those, that's what unbelievers are. But moreover, they're not allowed to kill them, but only torment them for five months. So this torment is going to be so bad that they want to die, right? That's what it says here. It's like, we want to die, this is so bad, but they're not going to be allowed to die. It's going to be a very short period of time, five months. Actually, I believe that might be about the lifespan of your average locust. A short period of time, they're not allowed to kill them, but only torment them for five months. Now, If you remember last time, these trumpet judgments, the first four, had a lot of parallels with the plagues that we see in Egypt, right? We saw, uh, you know, wormwood coming, water being poisoned, seas being destroyed, grass being destroyed, hail coming down. So you saw the plague of hail, you saw the plague of darkness, you saw the plague of the bitter water. And here, it shouldn't surprise you that there's another tie-in to the plagues in Egypt, The eighth plague in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 10, you don't need to turn there. But Exodus chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. So whereas those locusts in the plagues of Egypt were real locusts, Here, again, these locusts of the fifth trumpet are a demonic horde coming out of the abyss with destructive force that is like a locust swarm. Now we look at the appearance of these locusts. What do they look like? Verses 7 through 10. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and on their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. Now, I emphasize the word there. (laughs) What word was that word? Like. It, John says like eight times in those three verses. It looks like this. It looks like this. They had heads like this. They had tails like that. And, and in, their, in their on their hands were things like this. They wore something like the You know, this is John is not describing literal features. Okay, that's what he's saying. He just this is what I see. It looks like this, people. They you know it's this locust, and, they, and I see they're arrayed like a battle. If you remember, that's what Joel said, right? They they. They march in their formation. Not, you know, no one moves out of his own line or rank. So these, these demonic horde is marching forth. And note all of these physical descriptors uh, depict aspects of this demonic horde. So when you think of horses, what do you think of? Hmm? Yeah, close. What else? If you want to get from point A to point B and you walk, Speed, right? Horses are swift. So they're a swift, destructive horde. They have crowns of gold. What does a crown suggest? King, yeah. Authority. Power. They have faces like men. What do you think that means? They're smart. They're They're cunning. They have hair like women. What's that? Beauty. Beauty, right. They're seductive. They're alluring. They have lion's teeth. What does that suggest? Ferocious. They're cruel. Iron breastplates. Right. Indestructible. Wings that sound like chariots. They're noisy, but what is... (laughs) Thank you, Fred. But what does that suggest? Speed is one, yeah. What's that? They can go fast. But think of it, you know, when you hear this, you know, if you heard all that buzzing, it'd be kind of intimidating and terrifying, right? I'd be scared if I heard, you know, you know this, this, all this buzzing, right? And scorpions' tails, they torment and they torture. This demonic horde will quickly come down and torment and afflict those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And again, as we said earlier, the people of the earth will want to die, but will not be allowed to die. Now, a demon can inflict all sorts of torment upon people. Physical and mental anguish and suffering. We, again, I point to the Gospels and all the examples of uh, demon-possessed people you see in the Gospels that Jesus casts out. They're afflicted with all kinds of things. They can't see, they can't speak, they can't hear, they can't walk. Uh, some of them actually try to throw themselves into flames or throw themselves downhills or whatever. You know, they're, they're mentally, psychologically, emotionally, physically tormented, these people who are under the spell of these demons. And that's the kind of affliction that the people will have as this demonic horde is unleashed upon them. But again, this is, this, this is judgment upon the wicked, And the ringleader of this demonic horde is none other than Satan himself in verse 11. And this locust army, this demonic horde, had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. He is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name is destruction or the destroyer. That's what those words mean. You might have a footnote that says that there in your Bibles. And that is the first woe. There are two more to go. (laughs) One woe is past. Verse 12, behold, two more woes are coming after this. So now moving along, this hopefully will go a little quicker, John now sees the sixth angel appear. And he sounds his trumpet. In verses 13 and 14, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, so this voice, John hears this voice talking to the angel that just blew the trumpet, and this voice comes from the horns of <clears throat> excuse me the horns of the altar now we 've seen this altar before, right? Not too long ago in Revelation chapter eight, verse three. This is during the seventh seal. Um, when that seal was broken, there was silence, and then Another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. This is a, I don't want to say a replica, it is the archetype of the the altar of incense that you have in the temple, in the Old Testament temple. So, there are two altars in Old Testament worship. There is the big bronze altar that was in the courtyard that the uh, the priest would offer the burnt offerings upon. And then there was the golden altar, which was not in the most holy place, but in the holy place. So that first section, you had the, 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 the table with the showbread, you had the lampstand, and you had the golden altar right before the, the entrance to the Holy of Holies, and the, the priest would offer incense on there as you know, sort of implying the prayers going up to God. So we saw that altar before, now this altar, again, this voice comes out and it tells that sixth angel, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Every time I hear that, I want to sort of, I think of that old movie, uh, uh, what is it, Clash of the Titans? Release the Kraken, you know, (laughs) release the four angels who are at the river Euphrates. Again, now we're going to have another debate here. Who are these four angels that are (laughs) at the river Euphrates? Now it's possible there's a connection between these four angels and the four angels we saw in Revelation 7:1. If you want to, you can flip back there if you want, but in Revelation chapter 1, um, after the fourth seal, or sorry, the sixth seal was broken, uh, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. That the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So it could, they could be connected to these four angels who are holding back the four winds. It's quite possible that these four angels are also demons as well because it says release the angels who are bound by the great river Euphrates. So I think they're, they're demons as well. Now, what is the significance of the river Euphrates? I didn't have time to study this. So I'm hoping maybe you guys can help me out. I'm lying. I'm lying. I did study this, but it's a border, right? So if you remember way back in Genesis 15, the River Euphrates was the border of the original promised land. It's the actual border. When God makes the covenant with Abram, He says in verse 15, or sorry, verse 18 of chapter 15 on the same day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. okay, This is the actual boundary of the promised land. Now, at no point in Israel's history have they ever completely occupied the entire extent of the promised land. They got very, very close during Solomon's reign. They had territory that went up to the river Euphrates, but it was sort of like annexed. It wasn't totally under their control. They just sort of paid tribute to them. So there was never really a time when Israel had the complete promised land, but the original border goes up to the Euphrates River. So that means what is beyond the, uh, the river Euphrates? What is beyond, the, if, if the Euphrates River is the boundary of uh, the promised land, what's beyond that? Not the promised land, right, exactly. To borrow a phrase from the Hobbit, there be dragons (laughs) beyond beyond here. Very good, that's uh, that's (laughs) not the promised land, exactly. No, anything beyond the uh, Euphrates River is usually uh, associated with Israel's oppression and captivity. Think of all the nations that came from beyond the Euphrates, Assyria comes from beyond the Euphrates, Babylon comes from beyond the Euphrates. And they usually come down across the Euphrates into the Promised Land to drag Israel into captivity. Interestingly enough, what would during the time of John writing Revelation, what was the easternmost border of the Roman Empire? I give you three guesses. The first two don't count. The Euphrates River. Exactly. And beyond the Euphrates River was the Parthian Empire, which was, at the time at least, a very serious threat to Rome's eastern flanks. It is said that they had swift uh, armies on horseback that had deadly archers on them. They were able to inflict all kinds of damage through horseback archery and all that stuff. So we read here in chapter 9, verse 15, that these four angels who are bound at the river euphrates are prepared for this very hour it's a very specific time right so the so the four angels uh, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind in other words this is a very precise moment in time right if you can give me the hour the day the month and the year i can you know that that's that's pretty precise right you know, Jesus said about his own return, no one knows the day or the hour. And then people who think they know said, well, we can know the month and the year. It's like, well, no, no, not, you don't even know that either. But this is a very precise moment of time, and they are released now. Their mission is to kill a third of mankind. And again, this is the same as we saw with all the other trumpets, this limited scope of judgment, one-third, one-third, one-third this time, one-third of all mankind. And John now sees a description of what follows in the wake of these angels being released. So as they're released, verses 16-19, through John says, "...now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on uh, on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions." And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. So again, this is another demonic horde being released. But instead of tormenting humanity for five months, they are now released to kill one third of all humanity, those who do not have the seal. Now that number there, that he sees, two hundred million. All right, I remember back in my dispensational days reading people like um, who was the guy who wrote, who wrote the the Left Behind? What's that? Well, Hal Lindsey's one, Jenkins. Uh, but who's the other author? Jerry Jenkins, and there are two guys. Anyway. They would say, well, China has a 200 million man army. Okay, maybe they do. <laughs> but I don't think their army looks anything like this. And I don't think even a 200 million man human army could destroy one third. I mean, think about it. What, what's the world's population nowadays? Seven billion. Okay, what's one third of seven billion? Probably about two billion I don't think a 200 million man army could kill 2 billion people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Anyway, the Greek is a little more interesting. So uh, if you have the, e- who has the ESV here? I know a couple people have ESV, right? Right. Does it say twice 10,000 times 10,000 in yours? Okay. And that's what the word there means, Okay. There's that word 10,000, is the Greek word uh, myrias, which is myriad. We get the word myriad from it. So, this, this, it, that word literally means 10,000. It's the biggest number they had. Or it can mean an innumerable multitude. So, again, we need to resist the urge to see this 200 million as a literal number. A myriad, as I said, was the largest number in the Greek language. So, it's an innumerable multitude. But more than that, it's twice an innumerable multitude. So, what's two times an innumerable multitude? It's still an innumerable multitude, right? Just like saying, you know, when you get, you know, as kids, you, maybe you see kids do this. Well, I love you. Well, I love you more. Why well, I love you 10 times. Why well, I love you a billion times. Why well, I love you infinity? And then the kid has to say, well, I love you infinity plus one. You know, <laughs> right? What's, infin- what's two times infinity? It's still infinity, right? It's an innumerable multitude. It's, it's a lot, okay? A lot of demons. And their appearance, again, like horses with riders. Riders wearing breastplates of red, blue, and yellow. Very similar to the images we saw before in the fifth trumpet. The horses have heads like lions and tails like serpents. But it's not the riders who are fearful. It's the horses that are fearful. The horses do all the damage. The power is in the mouths of the horses and in their tails, And then fire, smoke, and brimstone. When you think of brimstone, what do you think of? Hell, right? (laughs) Fire and brimstone. Brimstone, stuff associated with hell, comes out of their mouths, and their serpent-like tails also afflict all kinds of harm. The death inflicted by these demons uh, comes from the three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, which come out of their mouths. Now again, how does this death come about? How does the devil bring death throughout the Bible? When, when the devil seeks to do damage, how does the devil inflict pain and death? Right, so someone said liar. Did you say liar, Wally? Or someone said liar. Yeah, liar, so deception, right? Through lies and deceit. You see this all the way back in the beginning, right? In the garden. What, was, what, what, did, what did the serpent do to Eve? He deceived her. Right? He made her eat the forbidden fruit. And what, happened? what did God say if you ate that fruit? In that day you would die. Or in the Hebrew, I like the way the Hebrew puts it, dying you will die. <laughs> As you're dying, you're going to die. <laughs> so yeah, they, they, they kill through lies and deceits. This demonic horde has been casting lies upon humanity. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But even if our Gospel, this is Paul writing, but even if our Gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, those who are dying, whose minds the God of this age, Satan and his demonic hordes, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in them. So these demons do their work, not only through lies and deceits, but by veiling the minds of humanity so that the Gospel does not go forth. Again, you remember the parable of the sower. What's the first seed? The first seed is thrown onto the what? The hard ground, right? And then what happens? Right? The birds of the air come and swipe that seed before it can even take root. That's what the demons do, right? Satan, you know, you cast the seed of the gospel out, Satan comes and snatches that seed before you can even bear fruit, before they can bear any kind of fruit. Another passage, if you will, you can turn there if you'd like. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. So in Second Thessalonians, we read here verses 1 through 12. Paul again writes, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, again, so Paul's talking about the end, we ask you not to be so soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So the people there were afraid. They thought the day of the Lord had come, and they missed the party. Verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is at work already. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders." And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this reason, that God uh, for this reason God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So again, what Paul is saying here is that as this day is approaching, this man of lawlessness who has the power of Satan, working with the power of Satan. Will sow lies and deceit, and then God will judge the people by allowing them to believe the lie unto death. So these horses, as one again another commentator writes, these horses, again, going back to Revelation nine, these horses of death wield death through their hellish deceit that pours forth from their mouths hot, smoky and rancid-smelling as sulphur. But just like at the breaking of the sixth seal, even though one-third of the human race is slain through these demonic afflictions, the remaining two-third refuse to repent. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. But the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. It's a sad tale, but one that is so often true, right? Sinful man never truly learns from their mistakes. Rather than repent, these people who see this affliction occurring, they just double down. And it's interesting, too, notice that they worship demons. So they're worshiping the very ones who are afflicting them. And that, again, too, is very like sinful human beings. So as we bring this to a close, what lessons can we draw from Revelation chapter 9? Well, again, as we see from verses 20 and 21, the sinful world is judged because of their idolatry. They're judged because of their apostasy. They're judged because of their demon worship, their murders, their sorceries, and their sexual immorality. In other words, in in a word, they are condemned and judged because of their sin there will be no good people judged only sinners because no one is good enough this is total depravity in all its full glory quote unquote right because even despite what they see the devastation that they see they will not repent but these judges or these judgments i should say as terrifying as they are do not fall upon the people of god you remember all the way back in verse 4 right This judgment comes upon all those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. Judgment from God falls only on the sinners. The redeemed have been judged already, right? They've been judged where? In Christ. They've been judged in Christ. Fearful as these trumpet plagues may be, they are under the sovereign control of our covenant-keeping God, and thus they are unable to harm us. Like the rest of the trumpets, the sixth trumpet is limited. One third of mankind is slain. This is a devastating judgment, to be sure, but it is not final judgment. So there's still time to repent. That's the other side of the, the you know, flip side of that good news, right? Even though they don't repent, there's still time to repent. But time is running short because we are six trumpets down, one more to go. Two woes have been pronounced, there's one left to go. But you have to wait for the seventh trumpet. And you don't have to wait for two weeks. You have to wait for a little longer. Because the, what we see now, what we're going to see next time at least, is John is going to have some more interlude visions. If you remember, chapter 7 was an interlude at between the sixth and the seventh seal. We saw the sealing of, of God's uh, the is- Israel and the multitude before the throne. Here we're going to see this little book and the angel and, and the two witnesses. So we're going to get some interlude visions before we see the seventh trumpet. But the seventh trumpet does mark the end of God's wrath.